Hello, everyone, and welcome to Think Yourself Healthy podcast. I'm your host, Heather Duranja. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, everybody. On today's episode of Think Yourself Healthy, we have special guest, Dr. Fred Moss. He is a holistic psychiatrist serving in many mm-hmm. capacities, telos, telepsychiatrist, speaker, psychiatry expert, witness, telehealth educator, mental health coach, and filmmaker. A desire to help people has been the force leading him to various settings and roles as a psychiatrist over the years and compelling him to continually look for better, more effective ways to provide the highest quality care. He is the amazing person behind Welcome to Humanity and Global Madness. Dr. Moss, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. It's great to have you. You know, every time I hear that bio, it's actually, uh, you know, stuff has happened since that bio was written. And even that bio surprises me. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. I'm that guy. And it really is a pleasure to be here with you and your audience. Thank you. That's exciting. Well, it looks like you've been doing some really good stuff. Tell me a little bit about humanity. Uh, Welcome to humanity and global madness. Yeah. So Welcome to Humanity is about six years old now, and um, Welcome to Humanity is, the, is sort of the uh, offspring of a whole life of realizing that who I am is someone who um, brings connection and communication and creativity as a source of all healing. Mm-hmm. In order to do that, in order to bring our true voice forward, we have to get that all of the human experience is exquisite, even the stuff that is completely miserable and painful and tolerable, unspeakable. But all of that are, you know, are opportunities to live the human life. And, you know, Welcome to Humanity then has the implication that it's like an answer you can give to any part of your human experience that isn't going the way you want, or at the same time, or when miracles happen on the other side and ecstasy or uh, beauty um, in the form of, uh, um, you know, unimaginable positive outcomes occur, there's also a welcome to humanity there. So it's a matter of really taking on that, that how we tend to see life uh, very myopically, very uh, restrictively. And welcome to humanity is just a way to get that every single second of life up until now, and every, every second of life between now and when it ends, uh, is part of what this human experience is about. And uh, we're fortunate to have all the experiences we have in humanity. When we get there, one of the things that happens is we start from a level playing field and we can communicate to each other with the idea that whatever's happening with you or them or her or, or him, um, I can resonate with because it's all in the human experience, whether or not I've experienced it before uh, directly. And Welcome to Humanity allows us to level the playing field and actually create a resonance or a connection that in my world is uh, foundation and fundamental for all healing. Uh, human connection is a prerequisite for healings of all conditions of all types. And uh, I really, you know, just, it's a good place to start from when we re- realize that none of us really know what's coming next. And um, none of us have a good old answer about uh, how life has gone up until now, even though some of us act like that. And it seems like it's the, uh, you know, the desired, uh, presentation is that, Hey, I got this. Hey, it's life. I understand it. But in reality, none of us know what the hell we're talking about. And it's really important to get that because that allows us to start from, you know, from a place of, uh, unified intention. 
Can I get an aho? You could not <laughs> exactly. have said that more better. What a beautiful mission, honestly. Um, I think that all of those components are so necessary for us as humans to embrace. And I think that's where a lot of people get lost. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, we look, it's not like I seek out highly undesirable, highly um, disastrous or miserable or intolerable circumstances so that I can say I, I've done that. But when when and while it's happening, I may not also agree that uh, this is a great part of life. Having gone through what we've gone through, though, with the pain or the misery, um, with the discomfort, one can really see that it probably did help us to grow. It probably did help us to learn. And it opens up doors for even shooting higher for how important it is to live a life worthwhile, to live a life as a contribution or to live a life that resonates and connects with other human beings. Absolutely. I know for myself, it, you know, it was a, I was very much attached to being the victim for the first 40 years of my life and all of those unfortunate, you know, dramas, traumas, circumstances that I was faced with um, and had to overcome. And for me personally, when I chose to drop out that victim mentality and embrace and understand how all of these things were happening for me and not to me, it was a game changer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is. It's, and it's not simple. You know, you might drop that ball every so often still, even though you've kind of been there, done that. Um, when stuff's happening, when it feels like stuff is happening to us, um, and it sure does seem like it, even every day for me, it's like, wow, how, how am I to put up with this? Or how am I to make sense of that? Or how am I to proceed in the face of this? Or what if that is so? Or what if it's actually, you know, what, what if I just am a um, kind of a, a victim of my external circumstances and, you know, gloom and doom and, you know, mayhem and chaos are, uh, are, are just part of life that I'm going to have to succumb to. Um, that's an entirely different mentality than what's available when I can just look at this as data and I, somehow I'm still here. Somehow we're still having conversations and somehow we can get that we are unified and, and that even in the face of mayhem and chaos and, who knows carnage or you know all the things that are happening in our world uh there's the possibility of of unifying together and not just a possibility it's a it's a it's a declaration like one can say um you know my family is 7.8 billion deep and and just have that be the case uh we don't have to say that it ends with my brothers and sisters and parents or we don't have to say it ends with the bloodlines we can actually say that we are one human race and it's not not so fluffy to say that in these present day and age you know it's so easy to get around the world electronically mm -hmm. if both of us wanted to call somebody right now in in beijing and johannesburg and have them join this call within a minute we could have people from beijing and johannesburg on this call which makes the world pretty damn small really i i couldn't even do that when i was a kid and all i had was my stingray bicycle i mean i had to at least go over there to see somebody um, now we can connect with people from around the world instantaneously. Mm -hmm. And it's silly to think that we're not all one big family because we just simply are. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a very beautiful perspective and statement. So tell me, what is a holistic psychiatrist? Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things I wanted to say that has shifted somewhat. And, you know, holistic psychiatry is is someone who I think what it really does is the paradigm has shifted a number of times from the time that I found out about psychiatry to then, you know, going into mental health and then actually becoming a psychiatrist and 
doing a residency and doing a fellowship and then having a really storied career in every single corner of psychiatry that exists. I've had somewhere around 40,000 or more patients that I've entered the chart, entered a note in a chart on. So that's, that qualifies as me being their psychiatrist. Um, you know, when I went in initially, I went in because I was really just a mental health worker. I was a, a childcare worker at a state hospital in Michigan. I'm um, having dropped out of college a couple times, tried college once and ran away because it just sucked. And uh, ran around the country trying to figure out what my life was about. Got on a Greyhound bus and just uh, just kind of bust around for a while until I realized I, I probably needed to get a job. So I went back to college to get what would be a bona fide job, but I hated it even worse the second time. So I dropped out again. And um, when I came home and told my mom in 1980 that I was never, ever, ever going to go back to college for any reason again, she was in general approvement, uh, approving approval, I should say, and but said, you know, well, you do have to work in the meantime. It's like, okay, so she got me a, an application at a state mental facility for adolescent boys. You know, there was adolescents of all ages, but I my job was with adolescent boys, um, or adolescent boys and girls was it was a whole state mental health facility, and uh, um, you know, there I began to communicate effectively. There, there is when I first got paid to be a communicator. You know, I had been a a pretty good communicator early on. I was born to a family that had two older brothers and they helped me be pretty precocious. By the time I was in kindergarten, I was uh, speaking and writing and reading and doing math. And that was pretty far ahead, most of the kindergarten students. So, uh, you know, I was just like, really loved the idea of communication. And this was the first time I looked for where was I going to be a master communicator and and the, this job at Fairlawn Center was the place where wow look I could communicate and somehow get paid for it. The thing I didn't like was the way that psychiatry was treating our kids and you know there was a psychiatrist on call all the time and all we had to do was call him and say that you know Timmy was up too late or Johnny and Jimmy got into a fight. And he would come by with his weapon, you know, this is what his weapon looked like. And, um, you know, and he would come by and, and he would talk to Jimmy maybe for two seconds. And then he would talk to us, the child care workers for maybe five seconds and talk to the nurse for 10 seconds, write something in the chart. Then we would have to go get Jimmy and like hold him down, um, you know, two or three or four of us and then uh, inject something into Jimmy that would leave him sort of out of his misery for the next 12 or 24 hours. And if Jimmy didn't say anything for 12 or 24 hours, because he was in a stupor, that would be considered a success story. And I was, I just could not handle that. Every time we had to do that, I just could not accept that at all. Mm -hmm. My brother was a psychiatrist, the brother who was 14 years older than me. And at the time, psychiatry was seemed to be built on communication. So I just made it my decision to become a psychiatrist and come on back and bring communication uh, effectively into the field so that I wouldn't have to see that or like it was something I could do to counteract uh, that exact experience. Unfortunately, and so I did went back to school 13 years later, um, I, during those 13 years, Prozac was introduced to the world. And Prozac really just flipped uh, psychiatry, mental health, and you could say the whole world on its ear because Prozac was the drug that had us now starting to believe that if we were uncomfortable with something, if we were, if we felt unpleasant, if we were unsure, anxious, or depressed, or afraid, or if we were having trouble sleeping, or trouble having sex, or having too much sex, or writing, you know, writing too many checks, or having funny thoughts, or too fast of thoughts, or too slow of thoughts, all of that, there must mean that there was something wrong with us. 
um, and that we had a pill to deal with that. So biological psychiatry was built right while I was in medical school. And after that, chemical imbalances were thought to be what represented any kind of discomfort. So when you were uncomfortable, it was your fault. And that's really how we've lived life, actually, between now and then, you know, people who say that they're they have some condition or maybe, you know, it's one way to look at it is that you have a condition, but another way to look at it is that you're just human, you know? And uh, so over time, again, we'll, we'll skip kind of the details, but you can guess that as I came out and now they were teaching psychiatrists to do the thing that psychiatrists have now been typecast to do, which is, oh yeah, you're the field that actually prescribes medicine. It's like my life became I became an international expert in the thing that I hated doing. And, it, you know, that's a good way to have, live a duplicitous life. I, I went into the field so that I would not have to deal with people medicating my kids. And there I was like a medicating machine. Mm -hmm. um, this takes a toll, you know, it takes a toll on your heart. It is a, it's a soul sacrifice each and every uh, prescription I wrote. And if I really did have 40,000 patients, I guess I can estimate that I wrote for over 100,000 um, prescriptions during my career. By 2006, this wasn't working for me. And, you know, there was a lot of things that happened in 2006 that allowed me to pivot and, uh, you know, shift my paradigm a bit. And I began to really look at what was helping and what wasn't. I began to take people off of the medicine and they got better, like reliably, you know, as long as I worked with them, that there was nothing really wrong with them. They were only going through a human experience. There was some opportunity to take people off their medicine and later then get that medicines aren't the problem either. It's the idea that people have that they need to take medicines to be better. In other words, that they buy their diagnosis that they're afflict, afflicted or defective. So I began to undiagnose people shortly after that as well, and really have them see that they're just going through a human experience and that maybe, uh, maybe that's all it is and that I can relate to that or I can resonate with that or connect with that. And there was healing that would take place right then. Now, it's not for everybody to go that way. If, if, you know, for your audience, if there's, if they have found something that's working that, you know, has you at the top of your game based on what you're doing, like, you know, medicating and diagnosing and all that, and it's working for you, then by all means, and I really mean this, you know, don't even consider stopping. I mean, if it's working good for you, you found something that's working, that's really, really great. And I, I really mean that. This is more for the people who have not found what's working yet and know that they could be living a more optimized life. So, once I started undiagnosing and then unmedicating and then frankly undoctrinating, taking people away from their doctors, like having it be my job to work myself out of a job, um, what ended up happening is that I became more holistic in my approach, just seeing that that um, psychological is not separate from physical, that many physical uh, concerns are actually uh, deeply rooted in psychological concerns and vice versa. Many psychological concerns are deeply rooted in physical concerns. That's where holistic started to be something that I did, you know, and called myself. Now, the other thing that has happened since that name and since, you know, even the advent of Welcome to Humanity um, was that I've altered that as well. You know, I no longer call myself necessarily a holistic psychiatrist, although if I had to call myself a psychiatrist, that's what I would call myself. Instead, I now call myself a restorative or transformational coach where I walk people away from their diagnoses. A psychiatrist doesn't do that. They never taught us how to do that. So it's unfair to psychiatry to call myself a psychiatrist to say that I don't diagnose people because psychiatrists definitely diagnose people. But a transformational or restorative coach doesn't do that. And instead, I take people from 
knowing themselves as being defective and afflicted to actually knowing that they're not de inherently defective or in, uh, you know, inherent, inherently afflicted and really give them that edge to realize that we are all humans walking through the world. Now, take something for somebody to do that. You have to give up on your diagnosis. You have to take responsibility for the stupid things that you do or for the things that you don't like about what you do, the things that make you uh, ashamed or uh, have you feeling guilty or, or you know, um, have you, you know, the things in life or even the things that you eat or drink or take in that are leading to negative vibrational experiences. But once you do that, once you decide to take responsibility for all of your life, including the stuff you're doing that you just can't stand, because that's part of being human too, um, then we get to start from level ground. We get to actually uh, grow and cure from that point. We get to really actually heal from connecting with another person. And all I am doing really is continuing to gravitate to what works. But in the end, you know, what, what's really happening here is that I'm just a glorified childcare working, looking to do right for the kids that I met uh, in 1980. And even before that, you know, looking to master communication and realize that it's a heart of all healing. Mm -hmm. I love that. And, you know, I guess time frame, time frame wise, I probably would have been one of those kids that you would mm. have had to have treat when I was 15, I was uh, inpatient program. Mm. And mm. for me, that was a very traumatic for sure. experience. And in mm. my opinion, it did more harm than it sure did, did good which sure. led me to a path of drug use, you know, mm -hmm. use seeking the drugs. I just kind of took that mentality. What's the point? No one listens. My experiences aren't being validated. I, I am the victim, so I might as well just numb out. And for me, you know, my story's a little different. It took me to get a really hard, um, medical diagnosis, uh, chronic kidney disease and a, and a prognosis, prognosis of only five years to really evaluate and change my lifestyle habits, which ultimately led to me feeling mentally amazing. I started getting medicated mm -hmm. at 11 years old, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I thought that that was going to be my life. And so as I started cleaning up lifestyle habits, all of the sudden the depression, the anxiety that I was plagued with started to dissipate. And that was, you know, this door opened and it was just like, oh, right. and I like you didn't, you know, I, my first attempt in college did not go so well. And it took me really finding my passion to desire to go back into academia and pursue that whole route. However, I knew that what I was going into was not necessarily how I was going to practice as a mm -hmm. registered dietitian nutritionist. Mm -hmm. So I, I currently specialize in mental health and mm -hmm. uh, substance abuse and helping, you know, individuals understand the importance of nutrition. And I tell people all the time, we, you know, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this because I hear from patients that say, well, I have a chemical imbalance and I need the medication and I'm never going to get better or it's genetic and I'm never going to get better. And yeah. I always encourage them, you know, 
Unfortunately, a lot of these diagnoses have a nutritional deficiency at the root of the problem. However, this is never taken into consideration throughout all of the diagnostic processes that occur during programming. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts about the role nutrition plays with mental health? Well, it plays a, you know, it plays a, 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 an infinitely um, uh, primary role in the, in the world of mental health. Like, you know, you are what you eat, you are what you take in. Uh, there, you know, the, the relationship between food and drugs is so close that they are even having an administration that covers both of them called the FDA. And, uh, you know, the idea here is that what you take into your system um, really becomes you, and and you know if you're if you monitor that, and that that's frankly not just with uh, what you take into your mouth, but what you take into your eyes or your ears, your nose, what you touch, what you know, what you see, uh, what you watch. In these days, you know we have so many flat screens. What you're looking at, um, it's really an, it's really a, a critical piece of mental health. You see, we. That was another thing that happened in 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 the eighties was this idea that psych, the psychological person or the you know the idea that there's a there's two of us there's a physical self and a psychological self got separated somehow in our thinking, and then that whole paradigm got bought by the entire prevailing community. But it, it's kind of silly to think that they're not related and um, or not interrelated or not even like correlated, uh, let alone not causative of each other's issues. So, so many psychological conditions are a direct result of um, things, you know, toxins that we have taken in or um, good things that we have not taken in, you know, like um, uh, even, uh, even for instance, enough water or mm -hmm. enough air or, um, you know, enough rest or, you know, these kinds of things that we, we already really know are at the heart of, of being healthy. And when we don't have those things, well, we suffer in all areas of our life, including the psychological aspects of our life. So I really, uh, honor that you're here for, you know, nutrition, uh, and diet as being a critical piece of it. I'm going on a going on a retreat this weekend, a ceremonious retreat from, from, you know, the first to the fourth. So Friday to Monday and, you know, our dieta started, um, you know, today, um, for that. And, uh, there's a purpose for that. There's a purpose to sort of settle into our own health, to, to really clean ourselves up. Uh, when we, when we're clean, it doesn't mean we're going to get a great life, but we sure have a much better chance of absorbing or of responding effectively if the machine's running clean and, and uh, when the machine isn't running clean and with all the crazy shit that they've put into our food or that, you know, and now, and now is called food. It's never was food. And now we're eating stuff that simply wasn't even ever meant to be digested. Uh, there's no doubt. It's like putting sugar in a gas tank. It's not gonna, not gonna make the car run better. Even if sugar is, uh, you know, sugar is sweet, it's sure not going to make you not going to make your car run better. And that, that's what we do. We, we eat a lot of drunk junk. We drink a lot of things that are, are, are bad for us and uh, smoke things that are bad for us, ingest things that are bad for us. And then, uh, you know, wonder why we're not feeling well physically. Well, the, the same thing holds true that um, it may be maybe the same explanation is if you don't take care of yourself effectively, like your whole self, the holistic self, then there's going to be mental manifestations as well. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective and explanation. I have to applaud you for having the courage to step out of the traditional paradigm. You know, I'm curious if there was a lot, if there was any resistance on your part with kind of veering off what everyone else was doing in psychiatry, if there was backlash from peers and, you know, others um, in the field as you really focused on getting to the root of the human experience and providing people with true healing. Hey guys, I'm going to interrupt this episode for a really brief message and to introduce you to today's amazing podcast sponsors, WaveBlock. If you know me, you know that I am all about reducing toxicity. And to be perfectly honest with you, this whole 5G thing has got me a little freaked out. Did you know that your phone and AirPods emit radiation? According to the CDC, your phone uses radio frequency radiation to transmit its signal. This cloud of radiation just sits outside your brain the entire time you're using your phone or on your AirPods. If you listen to podcasts, talk on your phone, do Zoom calls all day, that exposure really starts to add up. The frequencies from your phone actually pass through your brain, which is really scary and can cause negative effects like headaches, foggy brain, fatigue, and other issues. I love using my WaveBlock EMF protective stickers for my phone and AirPods to direct these harmful frequencies away from my body and my brain. WaveBlock's accredited lab-tested line of products helps significantly reduce the amount of radiation you are getting exposed to with their easy-to-apply EMF blocking stickers. They have protection for AirPods, AirPod Pros, and all of the recent iPhone models. These stickers don't interfere with anything, so you can still use your phone case or whatever it is that you like. They just offer all-day protection. Make sure you head to waveblock.com and take advantage of a 20% discount using the code HEATHER. I'll make sure to link it in the show notes for easy access. So make sure you head to waveblock.com to get your 20% off discount and use the code HEATHER. Yeah. Well, you know, it isn't like I, people ask me that every so often, and it isn't like I really, uh, the, the, it's not backlash. It's just that I, I fit less and less, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, people would say, well, that person's depressed, so they need X, Y, and Z medications. And I would think to myself, no, please don't give them that because they're actually going to get worse. If you give them that, even though the marketing says that they're going to get better, uh, please don't, please don't treat them like that because that's actually going to get them worse. So I would say the backlash is more from me. And, and was there was there any resistance on the way out? Well, I stayed in the field for 32 years. So, um, you know, what I did as a way of managing that field, the reason why I have 40,000 patients, we, the reason I have like such a killer resume, my resume is ridiculous. My resume, my CV is ridiculous. It is so powerful. It is insane. And the reason why it's insane is because each job that I had, I stayed in long enough to realize that I can't work there. And then I went and got my next job. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I just did that over and over and over and over and over again. So now I have a CV that looks like I've been in every corner of psychiatry, which is true. And that's because I quit every single corner of psychiatry before I went on to the next one, just looking for, is there one here that can work for me? And I eventually got, you know, pretty good. The last couple that I did, uh, you know, this idea of telepsychiatry, that was, that was not bad. I mean, that was like 10 years, uh, 12 years ago, I began to do telepsychiatry through, um, you know, these techniques, most people had never talked to a computer these days. If you actually haven't talked to a computer, they, they consider you psychiatrically ill. <laughs> but back in the day, no one had ever talked to a computer. And there I was doing telepsychiatry online. 
So I could do it from, you know, I lived in Israel for a while. So I could do it from Israel to Illinois, or I could do it from Paris to rural California. And, and you know, or I could do it from anywhere to anywhere. And I, I was home, you know, I was home doing it. So I was actually drinking my own tea or, or, you know, resting in my own bed between patients or something like that. And, and there was a new level of real deep appreciation for telepsychiatry for the value of it. And I even uh, wrote some ma major articles about the power of telepsychiatry. Now, of course, it's the gold standard and it's being maligned. I mean, you know, now it's no longer such a powerful tool. Most people are just missing the essence of what it takes to do psychiatry online. Mm -hmm. uh, if all you're going to do is the same shit you were doing on the ground by just seeing someone for a couple of minutes and prescribing medicines, and it's not really, it's, it's not that much better. That's for sure. Um, and then also I did, went to the prisons and jails finally. And, and, uh, you know, that was a great experience and a terrible, horrible experience at the same time. But uh, I think that rounded off so that I, by the time I was done with prisons and jails, I think I couldn't find an area of psychiatry where I, where I uh, hadn't visited or hadn't been a leader in, in my career. And I eventually got to the point, well, you know what, uh, here I am, I'm, I still got my head on, I still, I still see that communication and connection are at the heart of healing. And I think I'll be backing out now. But even the backing out um, was tricky. You know, it was tricky because I don't blame my psychiatrist and I don't blame medications and I don't really blame anyone. It's not like they're bad or anything like that. I mean, I, you know, I still like the people, of course, and, and some of the mental health workers in the world are just flat out amazing. I mean, the best people in the world are in mental health. I would say that uh, it's just that practicing the way I needed to practicing aligned with myself isn't how psychiatry got built. And eventually I was no longer a good fit for, for being a general psychiatrist. And it's almost my responsibility to step out then and, and find where I am a good fit. And I still struggle with that. I, I, you know, I, so I, these days, like I said, I've switched my name from Dr. Moss to Dr. Fred and, you know, switch my title from holistic psychiatry to restorative coach and do just enough to continue to sort of back out of the maze you know, tipping my hat the whole time, thanking the machine for letting me visit and get right into the middle of the whole mess and, and also to back out. And I feel very, very fortunate that I'm um, where I am now, uh, you know, both uh, safe and capable and passionate about continuing to bring communication and connection at the heart as the heart of all, all healing uh, to the world, sourcing that for others, mm -hmm. um, much more aligned with who I was when in 1980, when I met those kids. So that's beautiful. And again, you know, I applaud the bravery because it really does take bravery to let go of that attachment to the credentials, to the commitment, to the financial debt, all of the things that it took to get us to that spot. So many people listening right now probably are in a position very similar where they're married to a career or a professional pathway, a job that they are absolutely just miserable at and mm -hmm. they have become a victim of those circumstances mm -hmm. and were conditioned by society, especially I know like my grandparents and my parents' generations, you get one job and you stick with that job. And that's, you know, unfortunately brings a lot of pain and suffering for many. Yeah. So there's a lot of people out there right now, I'm confident who are sitting oh, yeah. there going, wow, how can I, how can I do this? Yeah. It's a, you know, that's the essence of the newest brand that you didn't mention, you know, that wasn't in your, in your bio initially, but in the last few years, I've really been asking that exact question. And the idea of true voice is what's gone for us. So 
my most recent book that just came out last month is called Find Your True Voice. And uh, your listeners can, if they're, they're resonating with me in any way, or resonating with what I'm saying, the book goes a little bit deeper into the whole uh, philosophy and methodology of the Find Your True Voice uh, uh, tech, tech, you know, um, technology. Um, so as true voice, what's here is to really take a look at ourselves, keep ourselves clean, nutrition wise, keep ourselves clean, you know, in our in in um, what we take in, respond effectively, maybe mindfulness, maybe we would call it exercise, but movement or, or maybe uh, 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 actually living and surrounding ourselves with positive influences whenever we can. And when we do toxify ourselves, like finding a way to to, um, you know, regenerate, to detoxify. And really from there, just, there's an opportunity, and especially now in these very desperate times, and we sure are living desperate and difficult and challenging times. Um, if not now, when, it, when are you going to come to grips with who you really are? I, you know, um, to live a life of quiet desperation, you know, and to go to your grave with your song unsung, that's what Henry David Thoreau said, is probably the biggest tragedy that I can see in all of humanity, meaning that you've lived a whole life and no one ever got to know who you really were. What, 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 what is that? Like, like, how does that work? How is that okay? And so finding true voice, which means you don't have to go very far to find your true voice. It's right there with you. Every one of you, every, all of you, you don't have to go over there. You don't have to go to an ashram. You don't have to go to Tibet. You don't have to go in a cave. You don't have to sit underneath a tree you don't have to do any of that really uh it's a matter of you know what your truth is actually because you know when you're not telling it you definitely know the experience of not telling your truth either keeping it quiet or actually um manipulating it or embellishing it because that's an experience that sits with you it's it's like a you know a stone in your shoe or a rock in your belly for that matter and I'm only asking people to get a little bit closer to their true voice and once you start doing that like once you start getting that being authentic with yourself is all you have, then a couple things happen. Not only will you be able to maybe alter the job that you're so stuck to that you can't stand. And you're right, there's literally millions of people who are in jobs that are flat out miserable doing it, but are doing it for some unclear reason to keep up the momentum or to bring home bacon or to uh, keep their prestige or whatever is there. Um, there's some, you know, I had heard it for a lot of years and, and, and it took me a long time as well. I mean, I had a great job, right? It's a very powerful job to be a psychiatrist, extremely powerful. And, you know, just, I immediately, I have an MD, so I could get deep respect. All I have to do is start talking with an MD and people are at least curious about what I have to say about something. So there's a lot of prestige and, you know, there was a lot of debt and, you know, a lot of money in one way or another. Um, Ultimately, all we have is ourself. And so uh, the opportunity of really stepping into your true voice and, and, and delivering your authentic message to your community, whether that's your family or your even your spouse or your partner or your children, uh, authenticity is more important than, than agreement. I mean, haven't you had experience where you've talked to somebody and they're saying something that's diametrically opposed in their content to what you believe, and yet you really respect them because they're authentic in their delivery, because authenticity really wins. Uh, in the end, what you really need to get is that if you can burrow down to what's already here called your true voice and start delivering that, not only do you get to feel the peace of no longer lying or no longer hiding 
or no longer just, you know, maybe lying. Some people don't like to be called a liar. So that's fine. You may be manipulating the truth. Um, once you start really getting in touch with what's so right now and deliver that effectively, not only do you feel peace, but the people around you get a taste of that peace. And may, they, may, they may get an invitation that authenticity is what you're looking for. And they may be able to deliver truth to you that you didn't know they thought. So you may actually meet somebody you never knew right there in your own home, in your own family. And uh, that might happen simply by being authentic in their presence. Um, so authenticity and true voice are, are the access. And, you know, how do you get to your true voice? Well, you listen really, really carefully to what's going on in your world, not just the other person you're with, but who are you with? Where is it? What needles do you want to move forward? What do you want to do here? Who do you want to be here? What do you want to represent here? So true voice is not simply blurting out, look, I hate you and always have. That's that's not true voice, even if you have, you see, the idea is if there's been displeasure in some ways, and you want to speak your true voice, you got to take into consideration the context of the, of the surroundings, and who are you with, and is saying what you're about to say going to move that whole conversation forward, because if it isn't, that's not, if it isn't, and you know it isn't, then that's not true voice, that's just being combative and using your voice as a weapon. So regurgitating what's been there for years is not the same as true voice. What's here is to use your exquisite creativity on the razor's edge and really just bring your truth forward um, when it can, with a full intention, when it can move the needle forward. And when you can do that, no one can really fault you for bringing what is true. And, you know, we might find that our truths aren't so far away from each other if we're all being authentic about it. Mm -hmm. So would you consider that true voice also a component of inner knowledge, that inner knowing that is associated with that sixth sense of intuition? Um, you know, that's one way to look at it. There's like a, you know, you have to be a little bit careful with that. I would say the answer is yes, because what intuition is, look, it has a chance of sounding woo woo or, you know, like that. And people could reject it. Oh, there she goes again, talking about six cents. But here's the thing, the, the intuition that got built there is the intuition that's been there since before you started elementary school. All that is, is a memory of what you knew when you, when you arrived, you know, all that is really is just a human nature notion of what's really so before you started looking at all the uh, disruption and corruption that you were introduced to as a child about when to stay quiet or when to speak or how to manipulate your world, you know, blame your sister for your own problem or, or, you know, start crying so you can get a lollipop or all, all those things that created duplicity and lying in the early stages that never got fixed are still in your life. So you know what the truth is. That's the thing is that when you actually tell your truth, you know, that experience. And mm -hmm. here's the thing. If, if you learned right now that you were going that today was your last day on the planet and you know it's just been determined that this is this is it it's over tonight at midnight um what would you do with that time and i've asked a lot of people this question almost everybody answers the same way which is that they would go tell somebody a truth mm -hmm. they know what the truth they know you know what truth you're not saying you know that you haven't told that person that you love them, or you haven't told that person that you took $5 from them 25 years ago, and it's been bugging you, or you, you haven't, or maybe you would go tell someone the truth again, so that they knew the truth. We absolutely cherish the truth. We pretend that we don't because we can't believe anybody else because everybody's saying different things. And it's hard for, you know, it's such good liars out there. 
But the thing about the liars is that they also have access to the truth. You want to know how I know? Because the stories they make up have to be made up to sound like something called the truth. In order to be a great liar, you have to have a really good sense of what truth is so that you can make up a story that lands in that possibility. So it's not like liars and truth tellers. Liars are just truth tellers. They just are using the same data in a different direction. So we know what's important. We know that we're looking for the truth. If I was to ask you, if you want to start a relationship with someone and you knew that they were going to be 100% truthful the rest of your life, would you, would you choose to be with them? And the answer is, well, you know, invariably, yes, of course. Why would I not? The only problem that people have with each other is they're un when they're untrue with each other. So if we know all that about our truth and we know where our truth is, what, what, what's in the way? And what's in the way is this weird thing called fear. You know, we're afraid we're going to be canceled. We're afraid we're going to be um, censored or we're afraid we're going to be rejected or thrown off the island or, you know, opposed or bullied or whatever we're afraid of. And some of those fears are, are legitimate. But I have to say, even if you act like somebody, pretend to be somebody in order to protect the person that you really are so no one ever sees you, first of all, that's a totally ineffective way to live life. But secondly, it doesn't even, you know, it doesn't even prevent from you being ostracized and rejected anyways by that fake person that you're trying to be. I mean, you know, it's, it can easily happen no matter whether you act like you or you act like somebody else to, to protect you. When you really get that, it's like if you have a choice and either way you're going to be ostracized or trolled or hated or rejected or censored or canceled, then you probably should just choose to be you. It's a whole lot easier, actually, to be you than it is to make up silly stories that you got to remember every time you bring it back to life. Mm -hmm. So why do we care so much? Why do we yeah. care what others think and the fear and all of those emotions associated with that? Yeah, um, we care because we're social beings and there is nothing more important to us than to unify with another person or all people. I had a discussion earlier today, you know, really looking at the imagination. If we could learn, like if all of a sudden all 7.8 billion of us were a unit, had a unified intention, just all of a sudden something happened, you know, we've had some stuff happen, like all of a sudden now we're dealing with this as a world. Like we're, we're, we're moving as a world right now, but we're moving in kind of crazy directions, like multiple different simultaneous directions. It's causing a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of divisiveness and divi division. If we, if you would consider that there would be something where 7.8 billion people all of a sudden realized that they needed to work together in order to get something done, this would be a pretty formidable planet. We have some experts in every area of life somewhere or another in this world. And if we could actually utilize and delegate them to take on a particular project, we literally could get anything done. I'm quite certain. I mean, whatever. There's not, I mean, each one of us can almost get anything done, but 7.8 billion of us working effectively and, and collaboratively would definitely be able to get stuff done. So why is it? Well, we're afraid that we're going to be dropped off of that and then kicked to the kick to the uh, corn, you know, kicked to the curb. And not only that, that that uh, so we're afraid of pain and we're afraid of death. And, um, you know, we realize that we need each other. And therefore, sometimes it looks like a better idea to just shut up or alter our truth in order to stay with somebody than it does to say our truth and take the risk that maybe that person isn't going to like us anymore or isn't going to respect us because we care so much. Even those of us who say, I don't care what people think of, about me, uh, they're pretty suspect, they do. They, in fact, what they want you to know about them is that they don't care what people think of it. They, 
they care so much about what people think of them that they're actually making up that they don't care what people think of them so that you what you can think of them is that they're the kind of person who doesn't care that people think about them. I love that. Such a it's great, true. yeah, such a, such a great truth. <laughs> <laughs> it's just true. It is. Yeah. 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 Man, you are such a brilliant, brilliant educator in the way that you articulate. Um, I feel that it's very user friendly and that it's digestible, you know, information that we can really connect with. So with that being said, I'm very curious to hear your opinion about you know, we get caught up in our thoughts, right? And we haven't learned how to differentiate between our thoughts and our actual being. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The first thing, yeah, you know, I just was thinking about this yesterday. So that's great. Um, somewhere in my, somewhere in the back of my head. So I don't know that I said anything, but I was definitely thinking about this last evening. Uh, you know, how, my thoughts went dark. I think, you know, many times a day, my thoughts go dark. It may sound like I'm a master, but that's because I have, I have deep, dark thoughts as anybody that I've ever met. And they, you know, that's part of my humanity. And uh, my thoughts went dark. And I was like, wow, if I think I am that which I'm thinking right here, I'm going to go down to, I'm going to go down the rabbit hole and I may never come out. Mm -hmm. So, uh, one way to do that is this idea that I am not my thoughts. I am not my feelings. I, the, how do I know that? Because I actually can describe my thoughts and who is ever describing my thoughts isn't my thoughts. If I could say, I think this, there's the, there's the person or the me that is actually describing my thoughts that isn't my thoughts. So since I'm separate from that person, I can get that this I, this Freddie, you know, who was there in the playpen before I went to elementary school, the same Freddie who was there to bring joy to my family back when I was born. Um, it's the same Freddie. I, I actually am very familiar with that guy. I, I totally, I totally know that guy. You know, I've been with him 100% of the time. So me and him are good. And there's a way of getting that these are just thoughts. And even though I tend to conflate them as being uh, who I am as a person, if I can get that these are just thoughts, these are just feelings, these are just emotions, and therefore subject to shifting without shifting any external data, I do not have to shift any, nothing has to change in the world for me to start thinking top something entirely different about how the world is going than how I just thought about it a minute ago. Mm -hmm. Without any data shift whatsoever, my thoughts can shift like dramatically. If that's true, then clearly I am not my thoughts, you know, and if I am not my thoughts, then maybe this person who hovers over the top, maybe that's what meditation is for, uh, you know, these, these things that, or, you know, eating very well, like really taking care of ourselves mindfully. Um, maybe that's what allows for this is that seeing over the top, you can see, oh, I'm not my thoughts. I'm just having those thoughts and they are threatening to become who I think I am because there's thinking again. But if I can stay separate from that long enough, more than likely what will happen is the next, the next occurrence will happen or the next, you know, blink will happen. And uh, I'll be thinking differently about the world than I just was, whether it was good or bad. I mean, our, you know, thoughts tend to shift without any, um, without any um, actual impetus from the external world. We just, they're just thoughts after all. Mm -hmm. I love that. Such a great explanation. And I think it's so relevant because 
more, you know, we, we've, we've been conditioned into society that really embraces criticism, judgment, shame, guilt. And so if we think that we are our thoughts and we're in that place where we're having the dark thoughts, which, you know, myself included have them on a daily basis and I just let them go. And, and next thing you know, they're gone. But if I'm judging those dark thoughts, next thing I know, I'm going down into that toilet bowl that's pulling me down and then ultimately, you know, making me question, am I supposed to take my own life? Like, am I such a terrible person? And I feel that this is an important conversation to have right now with everything Mm -hmm. going on in the world. People are feeling so lost. Suicide is just through the roof, especially amongst adolescents and, uh, you know, the youth, the teenage youth as well. And so um, I think that it's just so important that we understand that we are not our thoughts and Mm -hmm. why we feel so attached to thinking that we are our thoughts. Yeah. Well, you know, the conventional educational system sure does uh, worship the whole notion of thinking. And that thinking is at the core of our being. Um, when when we're able to back out of that a little bit and start getting that not only, you know, there's thinking, there's feeling, there's emotions, there's being, and they're all different realms to look at the world. Uh, maybe the most valuable one is being of those four, but it's not like they cancel out the other few, the feelings, emotions, and thinking. It's just that we pay so much attention to our thinking. And, and many of us think that we can think our way through anything. Mm-hmm. that, uh, uh, you know, that thinking is the answer for all things, you know, like I think therefore I am or something, but, but the truth is, um, thinking is only one way through it. And it's massively flawed, massively flawed by the fact that we don't have a true base understanding of what, you know, the eternal world of existence really is made of. And without that, we use our very minimal resi- you know, very minimal, mm, uh, um, reductive way of the reduced way of thinking uh you know what what we what we think we know as foundational facts all of which are subject to alteration every single one that we think we know is subject to alteration everything we think we know is subject to alteration especially the things that we think we know that we know Mm -hmm. the things that we know that we know those are the scariest ones those are the things we're really certain that we know that we know i mean everyone knows it that's why we know it those things are as scary or maybe scarier than even the things that we think that we know. Mm-hmm. Um, we become so attached to those as being truths. And then we build our truths on top of those truths when in fact, they're just another form of, you know, sand on a beach subject to uh, relearning at any given moment when we learn something that undoes those, even if they're laws of nature, you, you know, you, someone had the audacity to call them laws of nature and now we call them laws of nature because that's what they said. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in fact, when we just detach from all of that, there's a opportunity to enjoy all of life. And then we, including the miserable stuff. And again, that's where welcome to humanity got its, got its roots. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about cognitive dissonance and how mm-hmm. this plays a role with achieving sustainable behavior change? Why? you know, what is cognitive dissonance and why is it so difficult to change our behaviors? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that cognitive dissonance is, you know, as I understand it is 
you know, sort of the distance between what we think and, and how we do like what, you know, the distance between what we think and how we do. So we end up doing things that are inconsistent with what we think we should do. Is that, is that a fair, respectful answer of what yeah. you're asking? Yeah. When, when you look at that, you know, it's because there's something about untrue and inauthentic and uh, misalignment here that is subject to, um, to cause cognitive resonance. I mean, really getting to the space that when you come in touch, the closer you come in touch with your own reason for being here, with what really matters to you, with really coming into touch with what, um, what is your authentic self? What's at the core of you? Minute by minute, by the way, it can change tomorrow. No problem. You are not, if you say your truth today uh, and it changes tomorrow, that's called humanity. It's not called anything else. It's not called you lied yesterday. That's for sure. It's called humanity. And so when you can speak your truth at, at each and every second, well, there's a freedom that goes on there, sort of like a cleaning of the exhaust system. And uh, when you're doing that, I think there's, I think you get a much less load of cognitive dissonance. And when you look at cognitive dissonance, you know, as an experience, probably it's an indicator that something in your life is out of line with what you know it could or should be, or what you would want it to be. Uh, you know, the kind of person that you know yourself to be is not behaving uh, like that is probably uh, being affected by an either an external uh, an external um, interrupter or by something in your world that isn't being true to yourself. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that explanation. I really wish you and I had more time. I'd love to pick your brain more. I truly, you know, today, just phenomenal, mind-blowing information that I am sure is resonating with many of the listeners. So I thank you again for being on. And before I let you go, just give me three quick tips for individuals to lean into in terms of alternatives to healing mental illness that right. are more effective than the conventional methods. Yeah. One, one is, uh, you know, really taking into consideration that mental illness is a made up conversation that came long after how you were feeling. And it, there might be nothing inherently wrong with you at all. You might be just going through life. Like we all are not having a clue what's coming next and being kind of concerned about it. Occasionally afraid, depressed, anxious, and all that. And that, you know, if you can see yourself as non-defective, if you can see that at the core of yourself, you're just another human doing that, that is a really, really great place to start. Um, really getting that there, if you're like, oh no, there is something, doctor, I can't believe you're saying that I need to be sick. I'm, I am sick. I've been told I'm sick. I can't believe you're telling me I'm not sick. It's, I've run into a lot of people like that. If you need to see yourself as sick, I guess I can't really argue with you, but then you might want to ask yourself, what's the value of seeing yourself as sick? You can have your same experiences without calling yourself sick. Is that okay? Or do you need to know that you're sick? And so the idea is, I don't want to diminish your experiences at all. Like, like I want to emphasize them. They're yours. It's great. I mean, it's amazing. It's so amazing that you have all the experiences, including the miserable ones. And I'm not saying I'm rooting for your miserable ones. I'm saying, hello, welcome to humanity. And when you get that, we're all starting at the same space and we can move together. So that's the first thing I would think of. I, the next thing I think of is something that, you know, that you've been saying, which is, you know, what you take into your sensual system, it's clearly affects who you are as a human, not just with nutrition, but, you know, with your eyes, with your ears, with your entire senses, like mm -hmm. what you touch, who you're with, those kinds of things. Uh, are really important. And they really become you once you allow them into your body or into your soul, they can be cleansed. And um, they can be, um, you know, they, they you can be what, what should I say, like, uh, uh, detoxified, 
Um, and uh, I invite you to do that. And that might be through really altering your diet and altering uh, what you're watching and altering how you use your time or how you, your, how you sleep or who you hang out with. So, so much of that contributes to our own sense of negative vibrational energy. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, if I was to pick a third one, like how to handle mental health, I would say the best thing to do in the whole world, you know, creativity, I have a book called The Creative Eight, you can find it at uh, welcometohumanity.net forward slash creative or forward slash creative eight. There's a PDF there and an audio book. And uh, creativity is a great way to manage this, like art, music, dancing, singing, drama, cooking, writing, gardening, those kinds of things really do help a lot uh, while you're doing them. You might notice that negative experiences disappear. So uh, creativity is great, but even that book talks about a punchline. There's a, there's a trump card in that book, and that book is just being of service. Mm. Mm, that if, you is... have, if you have anything to do, if nothing is working, if you're like, I don't want to get out of bed, if you just help anybody do anything, I guarantee, absolutely guarantee a reduction, if not an elimination, um, a complete disappearance of the negative experience while you're helping, while you're helping someone, anyone do anything. Absolutely. Mic drop. Thank mm -hmm. you so much for your time. I'll make sure that I attach the books in the show notes to make it easy for everyone to find. And Dr. Fred, I cannot thank you enough. Such amazing information. Thank you. Yeah, I have a summit coming up as well. I don't know when this is coming out, but the summit is going to probably be ongoing uh, for months. I put together a bunch of influencers, high level influencers that you and your audience have heard of some major players who are ready to uh, be interviewed about how they became influencers and really helping others see that they're influencers. You are influencers just as you are, as soon as you get in touch with your true voice and, and bring it. Um, and all proceeds to that are going to the war-torn, disrupted folks in Ukraine and Eastern Europe and in all other wars. But right now we're focusing on Ukraine and Eastern Europe. So if, you're, uh, if your fans and your audience, your listeners want to go there, the best way to find that is we the people summit we the people summit dot online is where that registration takes place and then i have a circle community that's uh true voice um uh dot circle dot so and uh that's true dash voice dot circle dot so and that's where my community is meeting and i hope to see all of you there fabulous everyone better head over there well thank, thank you, so you again sending you all, right. all the love Thanks for joining us on the Think Yourself Healthy podcast. Make sure you leave a review and let me know what you think. I love reading your feedback. Come hang out with me on Instagram at Heather Duranja. And don't forget to take a screenshot that you're listening to the podcast and tag me. I love to share it. See you on the next episode.